Section 2 of The Unconditional Freeness of the Gospel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Kristen Hand. The Unconditional Freeness of the Gospel by Thomas Erskine. Chapter 3 The True Meaning of Justification by Faith. Were some great convulsion of nature to destroy all the human race save one single individual, the Bible with all its contents would belong to that individual. It is addressed to Adam's race, and he would be the sole representative of the race, but we all and each of us belong to and represent Adam's race as much as an individual would. We have therefore the same right in the contents of the Bible that he could have. I am persuaded that faith in the gospel always is, and always must be, an appropriating faith, and that there is no true faith in the gospel which is not so. When a man opens his eyes upon the sun, he necessarily appropriates his share of its light, and he cannot look upon the sun without making this appropriation. In like manner, no man can look upon the sun of righteousness, which is the love of God manifested in Christ Jesus, without appropriating his own share of its blessed light. He that believes really in the love of God to the world cannot but believe in the love of God to himself. The general belief and the appropriating belief are not two beliefs, but one, just as the general receiving of the light of the sun and the particular receiving our own share are not two receivings, but one. God tells me in his word that he is in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing unto them their trespasses. When this message comes to me, can I put any other interpretation on it than that God is reconciling me and not imputing my trespasses to me? I think that any person who understands the meaning of these words and believes them to be the true words of God must see that they imply forgiveness for himself. The following passage from a very interesting account of the conversation of a young man who died at St. Helena is a striking illustration of the doctrine which I have been endeavoring to explain. Quote, His faith seemed to have no mixture of imperfection in it, for he simply and sincerely took for granted that all God said in his word was true, and was astonished to hear any of us express our want of assurance of faith, or of a constant and abiding sense of our personal interest in Christ. This to him was a mystery we could never explain, and which, happily for himself, he died in entire ignorance of. End quote. Surely of such is the kingdom of heaven. Happy man! He had opened his mouth, and God had filled it. We need go no further than this to understand the nature of the assurance of faith. A present sense of the love of God revealed in Christ will always give assurance, or, in other words, justification. And when that sense decays, the assurance must decay. No remembrance of it can fill its place. It appears to me quite clear that justification is described by St. Paul as a state of mind proceeding from or arising out of faith. Whereas, if justification be a judicial act of God, then that act originates in and from man's faith and is the reward of faith. It is a principle of common sense, as it is a principle always taken for granted in the Bible, that the ground of a man's hope and expectation and dependence must command his will and mold his character. As long as he depends on himself or has hope of delivering himself by his own exertions, so long will he hold and maintain the independence of his own will. 
he may do many things that are right, many things that are honorable to himself and useful to others, and yet all the while it is not the will of God, but his own will that he follows. Nothing short of an absolute despair of delivering or helping himself at all can cut the roots of his self-will, and nothing short of an absolute dependence on God for everything can graft him on the root of God's will. Thus, nothing but a true sense of the absolute, unconditional gratuitousness of the gospel can write the law of God on the heart of man. And yet this doctrine of gratuitousness is opposed as if it were antinomian. The true reason of the opposition is that it opposes the pride of man. Man, therefore, opposes it. There is, indeed, something very striking in the perverse ingenuity with which man endeavors to dilute the medicinal virtue of the gospel. He must have self to lean on, and so when he is obliged to surrender his own works, he betakes himself to his own faith as his prop. But this is still self, and in whatever form it appears, as long as it is the ground of hope, it must command the will. Surely this is the chief reason why the gospel contains so many evident declarations on the part of God, that beside him there is no Savior, and that man is absolutely incapable of doing anything in the work of his own redemption. Anything of man's own must be bad, because the growing out from his own root is itself the original offense and disorder. He ought to be a branch and not a separate plant. Self, in fact, is the great antinomian because it is the great Antichrist, where self acts and tries to establish a claim to the forgiveness of sin, either by faith or by works, it incapacitates us for spiritual obedience by cutting us off from the true source of spiritual life. Thus we may in some measure understand how the very gratuitousness of the gospel may lead to its rejection, because this gratuitousness is in fact a declaration on the part of God that man can do nothing for himself, and is thus an offense to his pride. And not pride only, but every unholy feeling in the human heart is offended by the gospel. For the deliverer revealed in it is to destroy the works of the devil. Those who cleave to evil cannot welcome the gospel, for they cannot rejoice that evil is to be destroyed. Its destruction is the destruction of their hope and of their joy. And however much they may desire impunity, they cannot embrace that as good news, which tears their idol from them. Evil is the strong man armed, holding their hearts and wills, their thoughts and desires in captivity, and they cannot bear to hear of that stronger than he, who by the proclamation of free forgiveness would take his armor from him and cast him out of his usurped hold in the heart. Meanwhile, however, the true deliverer stands at the door and knocks for admittance. His forgiving love is universal, and still it may with perfect propriety and consistency be said that until man receives the forgiveness into his heart, he is under condemnation. He is excluded, for he excludes himself, from the only good and joy in the universe. He is away from the God of love, and thus is full of wrath, and encompassed with wrath. He is away from the God of light, and thus is in outer darkness." This is and must be his condition until he admits the gospel into his heart. It is quite evident, therefore, that a man may be thoroughly and forever miserable, although his pardon has been proclaimed to him, and that he can derive no possible benefit from it until he believes it. But when a poor sinner comes to know that God is his true friend, who has loved him with an everlasting love, and that evil is his real enemy which has ruined him, 
that God has a right to his whole heart and to be the first and the last in all his ends and aims. When he comes to know that evil is a usurper whose reign over him is a reign of injustice and darkness and hopelessness, this powerful persuasion within him opens the door of his heart, and he welcomes in the forgiveness chiefly because with it and in it there comes that stronger than the strong man who will cast out the usurper and chase away his darkness and wrath and injustice and lies and bring in a reign of righteousness. He expects no reward for admitting the deliverer into his heart other than the blessedness of having this new and better reign within him. It is God's holy love which he receives, and into the enjoyment of that holy love he enters only by believing it. When a man says, I believe the gospel, and therefore I may hope that God will give me pardon and eternal life, we cannot but fear that he does not understand the meaning of the word, for if he really believed the gospel, he would know that he had, even now, eternal life. Let me suppose the case of a mother whose only child has been stolen from her in infancy whose heart still bears the fresh and unclosed wound of her loss, and whose imagination is continually haunted with the dark thoughts as to what the present condition and future fate of her child may be. I discover the child and find it all that a mother's heart could desire. I come to her and say I have news for her and that she will be richly rewarded if she believes them. I then tell her my news. O oh, reader, do you think she would ask me what reward I meant to give her for believing? The good which we receive from believing in the love of God manifested in Christ Jesus is analogous to that which we receive from a believing in the worth and kindness of a human friend, only that the one is as nothing in comparison with the other. It is nothing else than the enjoyment of God in himself and in his creatures. It is not anything that we get on account of our loving him, but it is the blessedness of loving him and knowing ourselves to be loved by him. It is giving him our perfect sympathy and receiving his. It is knowing him as the infinite God and yet as an affectionate father, as a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. It is the assurance which the heart draws from his love in giving his son, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he will never cease to love us with a love which will be, and must be, our satisfying and delighting portion through all eternity. It is the joyful and confident anticipation of the day when the mystery of God shall be accomplished, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and when the children of God shall be glad and rejoice forever in the new heavens and the new earth which their Father shall create. It is the discovering that all the works of creation, all events, time and space, eternity and infinity, everything is full of that God who loved us and gave himself for us and who, in giving us himself, freely gave us all things. This is the good that a soul gets by believing in the gospel. And shall we still ask whether we are warranted to expect pardon and eternal life because we believe? Does not such a question indicate a radical mistake as to the meaning of the gospel? Let me repeat. If justification be a judicial act of God imputing Christ's righteousness to believers, and if this act has no existence until the gospel is believed, then justification is not received by faith, but bestowed on account of faith. It is a recompense for believing. And men are not blessed in the gospel itself, but on account of their belief in it. Whereas if justification means the being made perfect as pertaining to the conscience and having the conscience purged from dead works, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 9, then all is simple. 
for we can have no difficulty in seeing that a sense of our own personal pardon and acceptance must arise out of a belief in that holy love of God, which gave Christ to be a propitiation for the sins of the whole world. This justification is truly and intelligibly by faith, for it necessarily and naturally results from a belief of this love of God, revealed in the gift of his Son. But if we do not understand the atonement of Christ, if we do not see in it such an expression of forgiving love, and such a recognition of the evil of sin as may engage our confidence and purge our consciences, then our belief in the atonement can do us no good. It does not justify us, it does not comfort us nor strengthen us, it is to us a well without water. Thus, when no comfort is derived from the atonement itself, an endeavor is made to draw comfort from the belief of the atonement as an act to which God is supposed to have promised acceptance and a special blessing. I see no warrant for this in the Bible. There are exceeding precious promises to those who trust in God and wait on God, but the promise of pardon as the reward of faith seems to me a mere human invention in direct opposition to the whole tenor of the gospel. It is evident from Romans chapter 5 verse 1 that justification is necessarily connected with peace of conscience. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now pardon, unknown or unbelieved, will not and cannot give peace of conscience. Justification then is not pardon simply, but pardon known and believed, pardon implied in and inferred from a gift greater than pardon. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The knowledge of sin, or the sense of sin, is placed in direct antithesis to justification, which therefore ought to mean a sense of deliverance from sin. The deeds of the law in this passage appear to me to mean the expiatory and purifying rites of the Mosaic law. And when the apostle says of them that no flesh shall be justified by them, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, he presents to us the same idea which is more fully explained in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapters 9 and 10, viz., that these rites were intended to awaken such a sense of sin as should make pardon a needed blessing. They removed ceremonial pollution, but they could give no real peace to the conscience, except by pointing the worshiper to that great sacrifice of which they were only shadows. The law, in its addresses to those who were under it, always supposes them to be sinners, i.e. under condemnation. It knows nothing and teaches nothing about that new life which is communicated by Christ to those who come to him, and which is not under condemnation. The law supposes men always to be growing out of a root which is under the condemnation of death. The gospel reveals a fountain of new life in Christ Jesus which cannot fall under condemnation, because it is the life of God, and this is the fountain to which all are invited. Footnote. The truest interpretation of the expression justification by faith is the condition of a man who is set right with God by the assurance that his purpose in all his dealings with him is not to destroy but to correct. That is, not to inflict present suffering as retribution, but to train him by suffering into a participation in his own holiness. End footnote. The same truth is taught in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 9 through 14, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, 
which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation but christ being come by and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this building neither by the blood of goats and calves but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh how much more shall the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to god purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living god chapter 10 verses 1 and 2 for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect for then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more consequence of sins verses 19 through 22 having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of jesus by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh and having an high priest over the house of god let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water from these passages i am led to infer that the faith of the gospel attaches to and takes hold of the propitiatory sacrifice of christ as including and implying in it the pardon of sin and thus delivers the conscience from the sense of unpardoned sin and i am also led to infer that this deliverance from the sense of unpardoned sin by the knowledge that a propitiatory sacrifice has been made is just another expression for justification by faith because similar effects are ascribed to them both viz peace with god and boldness and full assurance before him man in order to his true well-being must walk with god and must depend on him he cannot and dare not do this whilst he feels the weight of unpardoned sin on his conscience but when his soul hears the good news that through christ the forgiveness of sin is preached that is proclaimed to us see acts chapter 13 verse 38 then he can look on god as his father and dares to depend on him and to expect great things from him he may then draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and ask and receive the blessing i know that all who are really taught of god will feel themselves debtors to his mercy alone whatever their theory may be but even those whose true feeling may save them from the full effect of their erroneous theories may be much perplexed and hindered by them and assuredly there are many who do really consider their faith as the fulfillment of a condition by which they are entitled to pardon and eternal life of course when these persons wish to confirm their assurance of salvation they look to the accuracy or to the unquestioning submission of their faith and endeavor to persuade themselves that because they believe aright god will give them eternal life they remember the words believe on the lord jesus christ and thou shalt be saved and they say we believe in the lord jesus christ therefore we shall be saved if misgivings arise they endeavor to encourage themselves with the inference that as they have not doubted the christian doctrines they must be within the pale of that covenant which promises all things to faith but i am confident that such reasonings can never give peace to a really awakened conscience 
The moral sense refuses such comfort. To a moral and thinking being, it cannot but appear strange that God should pardon him because he believes something. It gives such an unintelligible and unedifying idea of the divine character, an idea which never can impress the mind with holy feelings or affections or desires. And when the hour of weakness and apprehension comes, when he feels himself on the brink of the unseen eternity, will he then be able to draw comfort from this dry cistern that he has believed certain doctrines? Is it not more likely that he will begin anxiously to inquire whether his faith has been of the right kind? If it had been so, would it not have had a more sanctifying influence on his conduct through life, and would it not now impart greater peace? I can conceive nothing more melancholy than the situation of a man lying on his deathbed with all the rich treasures of the gospel in his view, but not seeing how he is to connect himself with them. He reads in the Bible the assurances of God's everlasting love and of the gift of eternal life, but he does not see these treasures as his own. He asks what and where is the link which unites a sinner unto them. An inquiry how full of agony when death is evidently not many hours distant. He is told that faith is the link which unites the sinner to the promises, and he looks within to see whether his faith is right, but cannot tell whether it is or is not. His perplexity rises above his strength or endurance, and his agitation makes it impossible for him to know or examine what the state of his belief is. Would it not be a blessed relief to that soul to be assured that Christ died, not for believers, but for the world? that he was promised as a deliverer before there was one penitent or believing thought in any human breast, and that when he did appear on earth, he said of himself that he came to seek and to save that which was lost, that his invitation was, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Would it not be good tidings of great joy to be told that through Christ Jesus God is reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing unto them their trespasses, that he has tasted death for every man, that he, the righteous one, is our advocate with the Father, that he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, that thus the full pardon is already resting on him before he had thought of asking it, and that all which now remains is to bless God for his unspeakable gift and to ask for the Spirit of Christ to open his understanding and his affections to appreciate the gift and use it? These good tidings are proclaimed to the whole world, and when the poor man believes them, he will be justified by faith. That is, he will have the sense of pardon and acceptance before God, and will trust in him as in a father who pitieth his own children. Before he believed this, he was indeed one of that world which God so loved as to give his son to die for it. But till he believed in it, he could not be justified." His conscience remained unpurged, he had no childlike confidence in God, he had no share in eternal life. There is something very satisfying in this way of drawing hope and encouragement from what God is, and not from what we ourselves are, in drawing hope for the future from his past acts and expressions of love. It is connected very intimately with the spirit of dependence, and it is a style of thought and feeling which seems to me to run through the whole Bible and to be its peculiar characteristic. Let me give some examples of it. When our Lord asked water from the woman of Sychar at Jacob's well, she reminded him of the dissensions between the Jews and the Samaritans as a reason which ought to have prevented him from making such a request. 
He answered, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. John chapter 4. The Jew refuses water to the Samaritan, and the Samaritan to the Jew, but such is not the manner of God. His love is free and boundless, giving to all men liberally and upbraiding not. If she had known the fullness of that love, if she had known that he who spoke to her was himself the great gift of God to a lost world and the dispenser of all other gifts, she would have made another use of this interview, and instead of speaking of the quarrels of men, would have asked for the blessing of God. Thou wouldst have asked, and he would have given thee living water. There is something unspeakably touching in that simple expression. He seems to regard his giving as the natural consequence of her asking. And it is so, for the gift is already given, and the creature's asking is merely the opening of the heart to admit a love which has been long waiting at the door. This argument for present confidence and future hope, drawn from past kindness, pervades the Old Testament as well as the New. I may mention one beautiful example of it in the 51st chapter of Isaiah. As the prophet is contemplating the fallen state of Israel, he thus draws encouragement from the former dealings of God in their behalf. Awake, awake, O arm of the Lord! Art thou not it which hath cut Rahab, Egypt, and wounded the dragon? Art thou not it which hath dried up the fountains of the great deep, and made a way through the sea for the ransomed to pass over? Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return, and shall come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. With what confidence does he draw his conclusion? He passes from the past deliverance to the future, as if the one necessarily grew out of the other. This is an argument worth a thousand syllogisms, for it speaks to the heart, and the only argument in religion that is worth anything is that which does speak to the heart. I cannot but transcribe the words which follow. They are words which some sorrowful heart may be glad to read, for they are the words of him who made the heart and sends it sorrow, and can make sorrow a greater blessing to it than joy. I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who need remain uncomforted when there is such a comforter? O oh, taste and see! that the Lord is gracious, blessed is the man that putteth his trust in him. This is the manner of the Bible. It tells us of the streams, that it may allure us to the fountain. It tells of the past acts of God's faithful love, that we may be led to set our hope on God, and to feel assured that he who hath helped will help, and that he who hath loved will love unto the end. God hath so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son for it, and will he not with him freely give us all things? It is impossible to doubt it. That great gift includes all others, for it is the gift of God himself. It is not a stream from the fountain, but the fountain itself, the unsparing and inexhaustible fountain of eternal love and it is given to the world. Therefore, as each and every Israelite might take to himself encouragement and consolation from the past interpositions of God on behalf of his nation, 
So each and every child of man may draw rich and abundant encouragement and consolation from this past act of God's holy love in behalf of the world. And it is indeed a full fountain. It contains all other gifts and is contained in them all. It is their very spirit and life. It gives them all their value, all their sweetness. And without it, they are empty husks. The selfishness of man's evil heart greedily seizes on the lower gifts whilst it rejects the love of God contained in them, which is their very soul. And thus they become husks, the husks on which the poor prodigals of the world are feeding. The bread of our Father's house is the love of God in Christ Jesus, and there is enough of it and to spare, and we might find it even enclosed in the outward gifts if the mouth of our spirit were opened as the mouth of our sense is, if the desire of our heart were after God instead of being set on self-gratification. Does it not seem strange that such a father should have so many prodigals? that the swine and the husks in this far country should be so much preferred to the society and the bread of our father's house? It is not that the swine and the husks satisfy anyone. They are seen by many in their true loathsomeness and emptiness. But self can live amongst them. That is the secret. Whereas a man must renounce self before he says in earnest, I will arise and go to my father. This is the real bar which separates man from God, for God's arms are open. It appears to me further that the invitation to prayer is itself a pledge of forgiveness. And it will not be denied that the invitation to prayer is universal, that whosoever will may make use of it, that there is no limit but in the will of man. The proof of this contained in the words of Peter to Simon the sorcerer, Acts chapter 8 verses 20 through 24 is very strong. The apostle tells him that he is in the gall of bitterness and bond of iniquity, and yet he desires him to pray. Some of my readers may recollect an anecdote told of Bonaparte, which whether it be founded on fact or not, in some degree illustrates my meaning. When the Duke d'Enghine was apprehended, it is said that he begged much for a personal interview with Bonaparte. This, however, Bonaparte decidedly refused, and being afterwards asked his reason for doing so, he replied, I should have been obliged to pardon him if I had admitted him, and I had resolved that he should die. Hear what this unjust judge saith. He would have considered the reluctantly granted admission of his victim into his presence as inferring a pardon. Surely then a pressing invitation to come into his presence would have been considered as still more strongly inferring a pardon. If that man felt thus, what shall we conclude from the invitations of him who willeth not the death of the sinner, but that all should turn and live? Of him who said, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is said that only the prayer of faith is heard true, but every real prayer is a prayer of faith. It is not and cannot be a prayer at all without the belief that God is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We may pray for faith. We may pray for the spirit of prayer. We may pray for the waiting eye and the spirit hungering and thirsting after righteousness. 
We may pray for the first elements of Christian light and feeling, just as well as for the communications of heavenly joy and the greatest advancements in the divine life. But the first breathing or cry of the heart after these things implies faith. And such prayers, moreover, if real, are prayers in the name of Christ, because they are prayers for the accomplishment of that work which Christ came from heaven to do. The name of God is not the word God, but his revealed character, and the name of Christ is the divine character revealed in Christ, the character of holy love, consuming sin and thus saving the sinner. He came to destroy the works of the devil, this is his name. And a prayer against the works of the devil is a prayer in his name, being according to the will and counsel of God revealed in him. This seems to be the meaning of that frequently recurring expression, in the name of Christ. When the heart goes along with the declared purpose of God to eradicate evil and bring in the reign of righteousness, it prays in the name of Christ. Footnote. At a later period, the author would have given a more definite meaning to this expression. He would have said it was a prayer in the spirit of filial trust. End footnote. It lives and moves and has its being in that name. Prayer seems to imply faith in an open ear and a forgiving heart. When God commands prayer, is he not thereby declaring himself to be the hearer of prayer and the forgiver of sins? It appears to me that this view of pardon as being a manifestation of the divine character in Christ Jesus, altogether independent of man's belief or unbelief, is a view much fitted to draw the soul from self to God and thus to sanctify at the same time that it gives peace, because it presents a ground of hope entirely out of the soul itself, unchanged and unaffected by its fluctuating feelings, and because that ground is the holy God. It is not a pardon apart from God, but it is the holy God manifesting himself in pardon. It represents the love of God as the one fountain out of which all comfort and strength, all hope and holiness are to be drawn. And it represents this fountain as perfectly and absolutely open and accessible to all the children of men at all times. Whereas when a man thinks that he is not pardoned until he believes, he is almost necessarily drawn to self and driven to seek comfort in the actings of his own mind. And as he does not conceive himself entitled to draw water out of that fountain of holy love until he has satisfactorily answered to himself the question, do I believe? So after he has answered it, he is tempted to consider the water to be the reward of his belief. A second important advantage attends this way of stating the subject. Whilst a pardon is conceived to depend upon faith and is thus confounded with eternal life, it is very difficult to press the warnings and precepts and exhortations of the Bible as the Bible itself presses them. People reason thus. If pardon and eternal life are proclaimed gratuitously, what place is left for obedience? How can the preacher urge it as absolutely necessary without some inconsistency in his plan of instruction? The usual way of escaping from the difficulty is to urge holy obedience as an evidence of the reality of faith, as if its value consisted not in its own intrinsic worth as conformity to the will of God, and thus being in itself eternal life to the soul, but merely in its proving the existence of faith and gratitude. 
we are exhorted to love the Lord our God with all our heart, upon the ground that if we do not, we want an important evidence of the reality of our faith. It is this a worthy argument for urging men to the exercise of that high and holy privilege, that blessed commandment on which hang all the law, all the prophets, may we not add all the gospel? Must not there be a radical error in that system which reduces many a faithful servant of God to such an argument? The whole use of the gospel is to introduce the holy love of God into man's heart, that it may work there its own likeness. But the gospel cannot enter the heart without being believed, and here is the whole use of faith. The duty of the creature to love the Creator and the other creatures of that Creator for his sake ought to be pressed as flowing necessarily from our relation to him and his goodness to us, as constituting the height of moral and spiritual perfection, as being the very substance out of which true blessedness is composed. The end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned. Surely then it is more befitting that faith should be pressed and prized as producing holy love in the heart and life than that love should be pressed as an evidence of faith. There is a third reason which seems to me to recommend this view of pardon. When pardon is sought as an end rather than as means to an end, it gives a contracted and mercenary tone to the mind. We are delivered from this mercenary feeling when we discern pardon to be not the end, but a means to the end, which is holiness. Forgiving love is the manna rained down from heaven on all our habitations. It is the daily bread on which the soul must feed to strengthen itself for the daily work. When we receive it as such, then our natural language is, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. While we look on pardon as the ultimate object in religion, and not as a grace already bestowed, it is impossible that we can thus feed on it. Yet unless we do so, we can neither have peace nor strength. End of section 3